0: Welcome back to another episode. Today we continue the conversation with Malik Boykin, a professor at Brown University and a fantastic musical rapper and producer. We discuss imposter syndrome, Malik's research on algorithm bias, and tactics Malik uses to push through the intense workload he manages on a day-to-day basis. His input and wisdom here is impactful. Definitely not something you want to miss. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is Bedletter. If you enjoy the show, the best way to show your support is by heading over to bedletter.substack.com and subscribing. You'll be kept up to date on all new episode releases, as well as columns that I write on a wide range of topics. Anything from Olympian Simone Biles, to the war ending in Afghanistan, to the funny interactions I have with the world. It's all over there. Also, be sure to check out Malik's new song, Dancing for Freedom. It's catchy, it's full of meaning, and it definitely, definitely deserves a listen. I know I've listened to it more times than I can count at this point. The links to the Substack, the song, and everything else can be found in the description of this episode. Now, let's hop into the rest of the interview. I really hope that you guys enjoy. another question I wanted to ask you was, uh, similar to kind of what we've been talking about, how the music industry and academia are similar and, but then have these differences. Um, when you started making music, uh, or, or inversely, when you started gaining success in, in your academic career, did you ever, did you ever experience, uh, imposter syndrome? Did you ever, and if you did, how did you like overcome that?
1: Yeah, I feel like, uh, The, you know, I feel like imposter syndrome is like a thing that almost everyone experiences. And if they don't experiencing it, if they're, if they've never experienced it, then they're, they're probably narcissistic,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it's like, uh, for me... You know, I've experienced it in a lot of different ways, um, you know, both in academia and, you know, in, in uh, other aspects of my life. But, you know, I, I talk a lot about, you know, not in my research per se, but just when I'm talking to people that I'm mentoring or or, you know, friends or so on and so forth uh, about how I deal with that. It's an active process of self authorization really is like, you know, if I'm going to have it, if I'm going to do it, if I'm going to complete this project or this dissertation or whatever, um, I have to authorize myself to do it. Right. And to some level, like other people can validate you. Right. But a lot of times we invalidate ourselves and I do, I, I literally will talk to myself in the mirror. I do that. I do that uh, on a regular basis, especially when I'm facing an obstacle that's particularly tough. Um, and I face the man in the mirror um, literally, not figuratively. But it's like if I can convince that person on the other side that um, I am strong enough to make it through the thing I'm navigating. Uh, that I am good enough and deserving enough to uh, achieve the thing that I'm reaching for, um, or that I have, you know, all of what I need uh, within myself. Which doesn't mean that I'm going to do it by myself. You know, sometimes that means that now I have the, the the relationships and the the ability to loop in the people that can help me close the gaps or. You know the ability to go sit with the person who knows the thing that I don't understand for the amount of hours that it takes to to you know get the basics to then go work on that thing myself is really going to start you know with me. Like I have to go do that. I have to then authorize myself to go do that, right? To to go put that work in and to achieve the thing that I feel like is um, is is maybe that I haven't authorized myself for yet. Right. Like maybe maybe part of the reason why I'm dragging my foot or not making the call is like I, I haven't told myself I deserve it. I haven't told myself that I'm worthy of it. I haven't told myself that it is actually something I should have. Right. So I, I do that. And uh, it it is, you know. There are people that are in my, my myths and my circles who will sometimes get frustrated because, you know, I'll, I'll push them. Like, why haven't you done the thing? Why haven't you, you know, like, you know, get out there and go do it. And it's like, I have to listen to this voice too. I live with this voice. I got to look in the mirror and hear this voice. Exactly. (laughs) And And go get it. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's, that is, um. That's how I deal with that. And also knowing that imposter syndrome is human, right? It's just, it's just a human thing. You know, we all face moments where we're unsure. um, And, you know, we gotta, uh, or, or where we're like, damn, do I, do I really belong? And it's just like, no, hell yeah, I belong. Like you, you person in the mirror, you belong. Now, let's do the things that that's gonna keep us here to show these people <laughs> that 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 they that 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 we belong you know so yeah
0: yeah no i i i I've struggled with it a little bit myself here and there in different different regards and um yeah one of the one of the things that that I have struggled with is is definitely. Well, I feel like a lot of times these things that we're talking about, this stuff, whenever you whenever you come across stuff where you're starting to feel like you're an imposter, or or you're starting to get that that feeling, a lot of times I almost take it as a uh, a flag to say, oh no no no, you need to keep going. Like this is you know this is this is something worth worth going after, whatever it may be, right? And so. Um, I I kind of, because deep down, I feel like you know that's what you should be doing a lot of times. Like if you're, for me, it could be, you know, the podcasting thing, getting into that. It's like, you know, I feel like, oh, should I do it? There's all this, is is this even worth it? Is this even good? Is this, you know, you have these concerns, but at the end of the day, those are all just, that's just all self-doubt. And you have to, again, look at yourself in the mirror and just be like, I know, I know what's right for me. Like deep down, you know, so you just got to decide it.
1: Yeah, especially especially um, if your why is strong, right? If the reason why you're doing it, your your the mission that you're driven by, the kind of north star that you're chasing, that that's that is you know, um, causes you to, to embark on the journey in the first place. If that is strong and you you are uh, you know you have conviction about that, uh, then I feel like that is when mirror work really works the best where you can just check in and be like, no, like this thing is bigger than me. Or like, no, like this is where we're trying to go. We've made this decision. Let's keep, you know, keep going. And um, yeah, like, like you're saying, you know, I mean, and that's not to say that everybody that has started anything at any time should always go forward and finish. Sometimes there's there is the thing where it's just like, it isn't worth it. Right, my why really isn't strong enough, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, that many, uh, many, many PhD inquiries have died after conversations with me. Many have, and that, and it's a good thing because you know sometimes people are are gearing up to pursue something for the wrong reason. And they don't have a why that's strong enough that's going to get them through on the days where, you know, um, you know quitting really actually might make more sense. Right. Um, and so, you know, I really will check in with folks like, like, what is your why? Like, why do you want to do this? You know? And uh, I think for, for anything, like you're saying, right, like check in with that gut. Like if you get if you're getting uh, somebody that's going to ask you the tough questions. Right. And those t- and, and your why's melt away under tough questions, then you probably should do something else. You should probably do something that, you know, that you, you have more conviction about uh, that, that is more aligned with your purpose. That is more aligned with, you know, what you think the bigger picture of what your place is in the world. But what I don't want people to do is shy away from something that they actually want to do because it seems hard. That's when those whys really matter. And that's when those whys will carry you through.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I I level with that very much. So I think um, it's definitely good to, to, I guess the the, the imposter syndrome um, way I approach it would be good. Once you find that thing, you know you have that strong why, Um, And then you can use that to just blow through those brick walls that pop up that are, you know, doubt making you doubt whether or not what you're adding to the to the field is even is valuable or not right um yeah so uh another question i had for you was had to do a little bit more with your research specifically um as i was doing some digging prior to our discussion i read a lot about these two uh, big principles that are embedded in your research them being uh, preferences for group inequality and perceptions of group inequality Uh, On their own, why do these aspects, why do each of these aspects play such a big role in your research on inequality? And when brought together, how do they paint the more complete picture for inequality?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, they're super related, right? And, um, you know, there is clearly um, people uh, in the world. Who you know both from just observation, but as well as from you know what the data says, many, many, many thousands of of, of uh, you know research articles worth of data uh, that demonstrate that you know that like not everybody wants equality, not everybody wants that. There are many people who want there to be stratification in the society, who want people from other groups to be below them, and so on and so forth, and. Uh, as we go around the world and look through humanity, uh, this, the history of it, you know, it's really hard to find some place in human history where there's groups, where one group isn't trying to dominate the other group, one group isn't trying to. Uh, it, 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 gain more of the resources, get better access to the the trade route or to the river where the water is or or what have you, and are, um, you know, leading other people to be uh, uh, disadvantaged, right? And there was uh, a a series of articles that I read uh, put forth by Felicia Prado, at University of Connecticut and Jim Sidanius over at Harvard, that I think um, just hammered this point home for me and described the world in terms that just made a lot of sense with a lot of data that made a lot of sense. And it's just like, holy smokes! Like this, it just unlocked uh, a thing about humanity that I I had not um, quite put my finger on, but that I you know that that resonated, you know. And um, it, there's there's just uh, I think it would be hard to find you know to to supplant that perspective, right? I think it, I think it would be hard to do that, and so then we have to you know to navigate around it or, or deal with it or find ways to mitigate it or find ways to you know, find common ground and so on and so forth. Uh, because there's also people who are really um, egalitarian oriented. There are people who really want equality in society and who really want uh, uh, people to have, you know, fair chances and fair shots, as opposed to the rhetoric of fair chances where you, then you can blame people for not having uh, um you know, the kind of ad- advantages that you have. And, uh, you know, as you, you think about those two competing forces, you know, I, I feel like it, it is just, you know, it just really rings, rings true. And I think we see it in our networks. We see it in the news reels, We see it in history and we see it in the data.
0: Absolutely. Um, so um, another question that I that I kind of wanted to bounce off you. And it's I think it's probably one you've answered a few times, but I find it just so interesting, the topic so interesting. And it ties into your your research a little bit as well was, um, I was watching the conversation you had with uh, the armchair uh, scholars podcast that you had on there. And you talked at one point about the algorithm bias. And now personally, I I had never really heard of it. um, And I definitely haven't ever really like conceptualized society or just like what's happening on social media, what's happening on just in advertising, marketing, all everywhere, I hadn't really conceptualized it this way. So I was, I was watching that my mind was kind of blown. And so I was kind of hoping you could explain it a little bit and kind of how it works and how it affects people like every day, because that's kind of every day is what makes up your life, right? So.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate the question a lot. And this is really just in a very strong sense where my research is headed and where I've, you know, just devoted a lot of my attention. But, you know, from, from one standpoint, uh, we are automating a lot of things. Um, there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. There's a lot of data that's being aggregated and people are... Developing algorithms to classify things, to put it in this bucket or that bucket, or to say, you know, yes or no, right? With like 700 columns of data across, you know, 50 million people, uh, a mathematical principle will then make a decision rule because, you know, one person doesn't want to sift through all the data and can't, right? The problem then is that if you are making these decisions, and you're not thinking about the impact that these decisions are gonna have on some people versus other people, then you might systematically be ignoring uh, a problem that you're creating in real people's lives, that they're gonna have more no's when they should have had yeses uh, just because of the demographic that they belong to, right? That, That you did not make space uh, for for the algorithm to be equitable, right? And we also know that uh, a lot of times this is not a motivated process. People aren't necessarily getting together to say, how do we make sure that we, you know, deny all the black people the home loans or, you know, make sure that they don't get auto loans, right? But at the same time, if you don't think about the fact that that could be a potential possibility then in all likelihood you'll create an algorithm based on prior decisions of inequality that will then be even more of an agent of inequality at s- massive scale that you it was it was more negligence. It, or or just not even realizing that that's something that you needed to pay attention to, right? And and then the other side of it is that we also know that STEM fields have been a, a, a place that have had barriers to entry for many folks. So the folks who would show up in the room to say, "Hey, you know, let's make sure this faucet." that was gonna turn on when you put your hand under it, let's make sure that it turns on when you have dark skin too. But the people who would make that, uh, uh, ask that question, or the people who would round up the 700 individuals that you're gonna test it on, um, if they're not saying, hey, let's get some dark skin folks too, right? Like if you don't have the people in the room that are gonna say that, and uh, if you don't have people in your data set to even test this on, then it's going to get out into, into into the society and you know wreak havoc and uh, margin, further marginalize people uh, uh, and cause people pain that um, you know really could have been avoided. So you know uh, there's one level where um, broader participation could ask better questions to make better better algorithms, but there's another place where like. Even asking, the, <laughs> even asking the question to, to put in the statistical fixes by one, you know, uh, um, statistical uh, uh, type of fix versus another could, could really help to, um, to mitigate this. But then that adds a secondary question, right? You can't have all of the statistical fixes. It's impossible. But which statistical fix is the most equitable is still a question up for debate. And that is, is where a lot of my research is coming in, because if a homogenous room of, of computer scientists says this is the statistical fix that we care about, and it's not the one <laughs> that the people who are facing inequality in society would have preferred, well, then that's also an ethical concern right and so uh then there's the question of well how do we how do we ask more people the questions and how do we make sure they're making informed decisions and so that's uh literally the 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 psychology of that asking more people and uh um, making sure that they understand the decision that's being made and understanding you know what are the parameters of, of of the decision right so like maybe people when it's a cancer screening algorithm that's missing uh, uh, one type of cancer that's more prevalent in a subpopulation, maybe there's a deci- different decision that would be made there than when it's an auto loan kind of thing or something that's not quite as life or death. So these are real questions uh, that are on the table and this is you know really the subject of uh, what myself and my absolutely fantastic lab mates um, and collaborators, uh, frankly, are working on. So uh, about a probably this time last year, uh, Sarah Brown, who's a computer science professor over at University of Rhode Island, who formerly was a postdoc here uh, at Brown, we decided to merge labs because you, you have many computer scientists who've been asking these questions, but who aren't trained in social science. And then you have many people who are so trained in social science who don't have the understanding of the idea space to even ask these questions in the first place. She and I have done the the tough work over the last year to translate to each other, to read across each other's disciplines and to merge our labs to where we have coders, code testers, um, user experience researchers who are, you know, Trying to figure out whether or not they understand the buttons and the interfaces and what they need, as well as um, you know people uh, um, in my lab who are asking the questions. Does does the back end of the interface have all the features that we need to ask really good social science questions um, in this in this very niche space? So we have developed we've <laughs> literally developed three pieces of software that uh, help to. Ask these questions, or, or you know, extract these answers out of people uh, with complex, dynamic questionnaires that have like moving graphs and things, uh, as well as designed a number of tutorials to translate this information to people who um, you know find it to be uh, exotic prior to reading the, the tutorials. But we we try to do a really good job to bring it down to bite size so so people can make informed decisions and tell us what they think is fair. I think that's an, it's just an important thing to do.
0: Yeah, that is that's awesome. Um, that's really interesting to kind of conceptualize um, society and all of the decisions that we're making and every day and all of this just into. Uh, these terms, right? This, the algorithm bias and how how that's affecting us. Because I think, I mean, after I uh, heard, you know, after I listened to that and and heard about it, I just realized it's like, well, this is this is in everything. I mean, this is in everything, not just like, not even just job applications and all that stuff. Those are, you know, I guess uh, good examples, but they, you know, it's this is in everything, and so it's almost like a. What sucks is it's almost like a, it's like a crime of negligence. It's not like anybody can. You know, there's not it's 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 not something you can point a finger at at one person or one thing. I guess it's just, you know, it's the law of large numbers. The more data we can get, the better and more informed decisions we can make. Right.
1: The tough thing, too, is that that the point that you just made actually makes it even worse. Right. And and it's the fact that you have a harder road to hoe to convince people to think about it or to convince people that it's actually bad. Right. Because it's like, Oh, it's just in the numbers or, Oh, you know, I hadn't thought about it or, Oh, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, if you can't point the finger at a person, then, uh, you know, then nobody's to blame and and whatever. Right. Like this culpability, um, then leads people to, to further, you know, decide that it's, it's, uh, it's nobody's responsibility you know? And that's, um, I think that that is, is frustrating. And I think it is uh, just, it's one of those things, it's one of those points actually uh, was made in a talk by Jennifer Richardson, uh, one of my favorite researchers. She's a, a professor uh, at, at Yale also, uh, and one of my mentors, who made this point uh, uh, in a talk that she gave last year. And it was just like, and that is profound, you know, much in the way that that uh, implicit bias when people say, oh, well, we all have it and so therefore we don't need to pay attention to it. Right. Then it's like, no, you you have to pay attention to it because people are going to die or people are going to be uh, uh, wrong, wrongfully imprisoned or people are going to have, you know, uh, um, Miss out on an auto loan and have other complications, or home loans have other complications uh, in their lives because of this. So we got to figure this out, right? Like, like it's it's just just because there's nobody to say, "Dang, I messed up," so I, now I need to go do the things. It's like, nah, like like we all messed up. <laughs> we all got to figure this out, uh, or or else we're you know implicitly deciding that this type of in- inequality at scale is okay eh, on our watch. And I, you know, I just, I think that that's, that's not okay. And then we sh- should just collectively try to solve it.
0: Absolutely. Um, it's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I guess if, if psychology and so- sociology has taught us one thing, it's, You know, group, once you get a whole group together, they're gonna, and something bad happens, everyone's gonna say, oh, he's gonna call 911, no, call 911, nobody calls 911, nobody's gonna do anything, right? So there is, there is something, I think that's a very good point. That is a profound point to, to, uh, there is responsibility that needs to be taken, even regardless of the, of the level of it, it needs to be taken so that we can do something about it, so we can call 911 and good things can happen.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, totally.
0: So, um, uh, another question I got for you is one topic that I am always super interested in as well is how successful people overcome their everyday feelings about work, right about the about the parts of their thing that they're passionate about that are so fun, right. Um, as someone who has accomplished so much already, both in academic and and in your music, how do you how do you manage your time? your your emotions your behavior in order to uh, push yourself to achieve like what are some of the tricks you use to get out of bed every day and like go out and just crush it like you have
1: you know I appreciate that question and really you know the answer is different things at different times Uh, and you know, it certainly all isn't uh, as glamorous as it looks or as linear as it looks. And there, there's, you know, been bouts of, you know, sadness and bouts of, you know, feeling overwhelmed and, and, and days where that mirror work was necessary. If it was easy, then that wouldn't be necessary. Right. But it's not easy. And, um, you know, for for the years that I was in graduate school, uh, the many, <laughs> the many years I was in graduate school. Um, well, okay, let's, let's take it a step back. Okay, so one, I was not always a good student. I, I had certainly stretches of, of life where I was an awful student. I stayed back a year in high school, uh, dropped out of college the first time, and you know, went back um, you know, just after I picked up a lot of time management and, and life skills in the music industry. Right, So I went back to school the second time with a lot of trepidation. You know, just kind of like, man, I wasn't a good student last time, but, you know, I got this goal. I ultimately want to be a psychology professor, but, you know, I don't know if this is going to work out. Right. So at that point, I made the decision to turn in every single assignment one time to the best of my ability, given the time that I had. doesn't mean that everything was going to be perfect, but everything was going to be the best I could do with the time I had. Right. And I just kept that as an ethic and wrote that to my first 4.0 I ever got in my entire life, which I got as like a, you know, like a 30-year-old man, right? Um, And wrote that to my second 4.0, my third 4.0, and it ended up with a 3.9 in there somewhere, right? Um, And in graduate school, my master's degree was, you know, I look back and was just like, man, how did I do that? A lot of it was the same, right? Just this, this ethic, because you know, I was like bartending and, and like research assistanting and and whatever else, and it was just kind of like, you know, am I doing the best I can? Am I am I doing this to the best of my ability, right? And I checking in with myself about that, and like if I had that ethic, then it was going to motivate me because I had established a standard for myself that was like a new one, right? um and that then caused me to create lists and you know calendars and you know so on and so forth because this this newfound sense of accountability that i acquired in the music industry kind of carried over to you know how i was approaching my schoolwork now You know, there were tough days during the dissertation process and so on and so forth. But it was like, I'm going to write four hours today. I don't know what four hours those are going to be. I might linger in bed a little bit longer than uh, I might, you know, like some days it's tough to get out of bed. You can have a day that's where it's tough to get out of bed and still write for four hours. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's like, all right, I'll get out of bed at noon. Fine. And then I'll, you know, go to the cafe. And, uh, I will sit down and, um, even if it takes me eight hours to write for four, then I'll take eight hours to write for four. And if I get anxious, I'll go through some jumping jacks or whatever the hell I need to do to get back in the chair and face that document. Right. Um, and that also, uh, was the era where I came to appreciate feedback. Right. So like sometimes, you know, feedback is dreadful when you're afraid and you write this thing and somebody has sent it back to you with all of these edits and you know, you can't even read the stuff because there's so many track changes. You know what I mean? It's like, what did I even say? Like everything's red now. Right. <laughs> but but, you know, reframing that is just like opportunities to get better, opportunities to um to be appreciative of the fact that somebody cares about you enough to give you that much feedback and, you know, and just have an ethic of I'm going to get to a point where there's less red. I'm going to get to a point where I, my, my arguments don't get roasted, right? Like, and just get better and get better, uh, incrementally. And, um, you know, just over time, uh, it got better. Um, I was relentless. I, I literally, you know, taking it back to hip hop, uh, Wale on his album Ambition had a song called No Days Off. I took that to heart. I didn't take a day off. I think even on days where I was out in Muir Woods or in the redwoods of Oregon or something to hike or whatever, wake up, do a couple hours of stats in the morning, go for a hike, close it out, you know, and I still got my four hours in. Um, But I also, you know, had the opportunity to go do some some, you know, things that calmed me down or things that fed other parts of my spirit or that replenished my humanity while still, you know, um, being relentless about the the things that I was focused on. And I think that even now, um, that's how I approach it. Right. Like I wake up some mornings and I've got 8 a.m. to 10 p.m stuff on my calendar, you know what I mean? And so it's just like uh stand and deliver. <laughs> you know? And um and also find find ways to replenish myself, to feed other parts of my soul, like make music, like go dance, like spend time with my friends, like, you know, um, you know, talk with uh, uh, folks like you who ask me great questions that will, will, you know, send me off to, to, um, you know, communicate more science to help improve society in the ways that I believe in, which is ultimately, um, you know, one of, one of my whys. So I think that's the other thing, you know, continue to check back in with your whys and let those replenish you as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you made so many fantastic points there. My goodness, that was that was great. Um, I just I can definitely level with the uh, idea of submitting or or getting to the point in your life where okay, I now have to um, basically buckle down and work, and that work involves involving other people in your creative process in the sense of uh, allowing people to edit your work, and I, I love that that metaphor of. Well, you know, someday I'm working to have less red because I'm an I'm an avid writer. I love writing. It's my it's my favorite thing to do. If I didn't get a degree in psychology, I would have done it in writing. And um, and yeah, it's it's definitely is all about uh just what just putting yourself in front of the page, buckling down and and kind of just counting down and doing it. Like you got to just regardless of how you feel, right?
1: Totally. And you know, I, and you you just just, there was a flashbulb for me. So like, you know, in mass, in my master's degree program, I worked under the tutelage of a gentleman named Edmund Gordon, who literally turns a hundred this year, right? He's, um, and still doing, you know, I mean, I got an email from him, I need to, right, to reply to right now, right? But like, he asked me for a writing sample before he brought me on as a, as a research assistant and he annihilated my writing sample just, just just launched a missile through it and i felt really awful i felt awful right but it that particular moment it took a few days for me to even get back on the horse and you know like reply and just be like you know this is an opportunity to get better and to do better right uh but that's a thing to work on also that I think that people underestimate, right? The fact that your recovery time from critical feedback that is painful is a skill that is a, a, a muscle to flex, to exercise, and to to you know just find yourself in a place where you can quickly reframe and and um you know figure out how to uh get back to the page. Right? Because it's like, it's not like it objectively hurts, you've decided that it hurts, right? Uh, um, You know, and so in that way, it's like different than like going to the gym, where it really does hurt, right? But you have to like, uh, um, you know, get back at it and have that discipline. And you can work on that recovery time, you can work on that recovery time. And and working on that recovery time really is about uh, tempering your ego not being so attached to it and being appreciative of feedback and thinking about these as opportunities to grow, you know, and the more you do that, the quicker you'll grow. right? And so uh, I think that that was just a thing that I had to figure out and it took some time. Um, It is not like rejection letters hurt any less, you know, or that you know reviewer comments from from when you submit things to journals, and the reviewer is like, "Man, you're an idiot, and you know you need to rethink all of your research." You know, uh, <laughs> it's not like any of that really uh, ever hurts any less. But it is opportunities to communicate better. It's opportunities to learn how to to navigate your uh, work better, and to navigate your own emotions and navigate your own ego. Um, and, and to improve there's always these opportunities to improve if we seize them and, and do, that, do that particular work. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember uh, one, the one, one of the most impactful things I, I ever heard from a professor in my last semester of school was um, he said, once you've written something it was because we edited all the time in this writing class I was in. Just all the time, every class period, we're bringing in something new or editing it. People are destroying it, and you know, you just have to live with it and go home and try to make a little bit less red next time. You know, like he said, but um, he said one: uh, once you've written something, it's it's not yours anymore. I mean, your name is attached to it and all this, but in in the sense of everybody else and it's in the psychology of it, it's not yours anymore. It's out there. And so it's kind of like this detach the emotion from it. And, and when they give, you know, give it to you back, obviously, I, I do think it's, I mean, you, you both, for me, at least I feel I'd, I'd be concerned if I wasn't like, at least a little bit like feeling down, you know, but um, I know, I think that's a great point of, of building up the skill of being like stalwart and, and, and bouncing back from things like that and having the gumption to do that. That's, that's, that's very well said. Yeah,
1: it, it, it it'll a thing. You know what I yeah. mean? But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, it, it doesn't have to be devastating. And-
0: yeah, exactly. So just to kind of tie all this up, um, and uh, one question I like asking people is, what do you think the best piece of advice you've ever gotten is, or at least what what piece of advice sticks in your mind a lot? Could be education, life, whatever, whatever you want.
1: Yeah, that's... That's a, that's, that's easy for me. Uh, and it comes from my dad, you know, who um, has infinite wisdom and has been a tremendous mentor to many people who've gone on to do great things. Uh, but my dad kind of in this, you know, attached to what we were just talking about, uh, has had to remind me on more than one occasion that you're never going to have an undefeated season, Right. And it's like, you know, even if you look at the – and I'm, I'm big on sports metaphors, right? But, I mean, th- th- this really goes in, in many veins, many aspects of life. It's like even the 72 and 10 Bulls lost 10 games, right? Like th- there's, you know, uh, um, many games, like uh, three, hitting the ball in the play 30% of the time would get you in the Hall of Fame in baseball it's a 70% failure rate right like that there's just so many uh, um you know other kinds of of instances right like you know folks aren't folks folks don't, don't just go undefeated you know uh, um in life in anything um and you know in this game of academia it's also one of those places where you got to you got to apply for more grants than you're ever going to win You got to apply for more fellowships than you're ever going to win. Many people that I know um, landed their academic job as a one job offer they got out of 80 applications, right? Um, And while I know this, right? It's it's not like rejection ever doesn't you know it will it'll still sting you know what I mean so you just have to um, just remind yourself of of the fact that you're never going to have an undefeated season. Well, I remind myself of that often. I hear my father saying that on the phone. Uh, um, you know when when I have those moments, I just go back to that advice, and it's just like, man, you know, how do I get this next W? How do I how do I get out of here and and, and and put myself in a position to win the next time? Cause, you know, if you let this loss lead to your next loss, lead to your next loss, cause you you didn't try, then you know, then you're you're gonna be out the playoffs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, yeah. so you keep you gotta keep that that going. And I, I thank my dad for that piece of advice. Um at least a couple times a week it just
0: it'll just show back
1: up you know
0: yeah yeah no that is phenomenal I think the, and the second that you start thinking you're going to have an undefeated season you start believing it you're going to have a loss so best to just believe from the start that you know I'm not gonna it's not gonna happen and get, be off better that way
1: yeah, yeah, get out there and do the best you can, and 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 put up as as many wins as you can. And um, but you know you are gonna take some l's along the way, and that's okay. Learn from them. Watch the tape. Learn from them. Yeah. Uh, uh, look at those those edits from the rejection, uh, uh, and learn from them. And go get out and do it better the best uh, better the next time. You know.
0: Exactly. I mean, it'd be a lot better to have even a season full of losses, or even a season full of losses and one win than have none. Nothing, not even if tried, so.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, um, well, that is all the time we have for today, but I wanted to give a huge, huge thank you to Malik for joining me on the show today, um, for talking about his music and research, and most importantly, for his incredible contributions to the uh, field of psychology and sociology. So thank you so much, Malik.
1: I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so where where can people connect with your work uh, and check you out these days?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, Malik Starks, M-A-L-I-K-S-T-A-R-X. If you just Google that, you'll find me just about everywhere. I'm malikstarks.com. I'm uh, Malik Starks on Twitter, I'm at Starks Malik on Instagram. But if you look for Malik Starks, you'll find me. Um, but also uh, my research lab is www.boykinlab.com com, And you can download a number of my uh, papers uh, that are there and, and, you know, see the the groovy, awesome people that are part of my research team uh, as well. So, you know, and the music's on Apple Music, Spotify, Bandcamp and, and the different places. And the EP will be dropping uh, in, <laughs> yeah, in, uh, in good old August. So look for that. And uh, the Dancing for Freedom music video is on the way as well. Uh, shout out to uh, one of my mentors, Matthew Knowles, who is uh, uh, giving me support on, um, on the music video. And shout out to Brown University as well, who has uh, been uh, very supportive of my dual identities as an artist and an academic.
0: Absolutely. So there you guys go. Uh, be sure to go check out Malik's new song, Dancing for, for, Dancing for Freedom. It's awesome. It's on Spotify, SoundCloud. It's all over the place. Um, you can Find it probably wherever you get your music. And yeah, follow him on Instagram and all those places too. And I will include the links in the description as well. So thank you, Malik. It's seriously, seriously been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Man, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. And I appreciate you and this platform.
0: Thank you. That's going to wrap up our conversation. It was a pleasure to have the chance to talk with Malik. He has such a unique way of understanding the world. It's absolutely invaluable right now. If you have a favorite quote from Malik or a tidbit that he said, share that with me either in the comments on my sub stack or over on Twitter. I think my personal favorite quote for him today is when he said, many PhD inquiries have died after conversations with me. And that's a good thing. Sometimes people are gearing up to pursue something for the wrong reason. They don't have a why that's strong enough to get them through on the days where quitting really might make more sense. As I listened to the interview in the post process, I wrote down many important quotes. Because much of what Malik said was important and really honestly rang true with me. I'd really love to know what your takeaways were. Remember, the best way to support the show is by heading over to bedletter.substack.com and subscribing. Also, be sure to check out Malik's research and his new song, Dancing for Freedom. The links to everything can be found in the description of this episode of Bedletter. Again, a huge, huge thank you to Malik for joining me on Bedletter today. It was a conversation that I definitely won't soon forget. I hope you guys have an awesome week. I'm Christian, this is Bedletter, and I'll see you next time.